Do turn your Bibles back, please, to Hebrews 9, chapter 23. I was, chapter, chapter 9, verse 23. I was actually going to preach on a much longer passage, but in the end I decided to just do this last part of the chapter. And, and in some ways what we're doing today is quite simple. Uh, I don't think it's a huge, complicated meal. My wife said to me, I was nervous about that, she said, you know what, sometimes the family just needs pizza. is right. I love the story of three young men who jumped on a bus in Detroit, United States, in the 1930s. A lone stranger was sitting at the back of the bus, and these three young men were a little bit feisty, and they tried to pick a fight with him. First of all, they insulted him, but, they, but he didn't respond, so they turned up the heat of the insults. Still, he said nothing. Finally, they taunted and provoked him, but he remained Silent. Eventually the bus stopped and the stranger stood up to get off at his stop and then it was their turn to go quiet. He was bigger than they had realized from where he was sitting. Much bigger. And as he walked past them, the stranger reached into his pocket and took out a business card and handed it to them. Got off the bus and went on his way. And as it drove on, the young men gathered around the card to read the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> they just tried to pick a fight with the greatest heavyweight boxer of all time. Joe Lewis, world champion from 1937 to 49. They were in the presence of greatness, but they didn't know it. They had not seen reality because it was hidden from them. They were looking just on appearances. They, there was an unseen reality just beyond that. And if they had seen it, they would have conducted themselves very differently. Now, many years ago, there was a group of ordinary people in a church, just like King's Church Chesington, and they were so weary. They were facing so many problems and challenges. They were finding that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. My oldest son and his girlfriend ran a marathon a few months ago, and my wife and family went to watch them and said how, how amazing the experience was because everyone was cheering on the runners because at the end of the marathon, they are so weary. Those last miles need great endurance. And these Christians back in the first century are asking, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And this letter to the Hebrews is basically handing them Jesus' business card and saying, read that. We need to see reality. You see, if we lose sight of who Jesus really is, we are vulnerable to all sorts of pressures and crosswinds that blow in. All sorts of undermining factors in life, like strong currents underneath a boat. One image from the book is the idea of a boat that gets, gradually drifts away. It's dragged away by the current, swept out into dangerous waters. Another image is of someone who stops listening to good advice kind of deafens themselves and whose heart hardens like hardening of the arteries until in the end they're in great danger. The book gives these kind of warnings but it also <laughs> don't know what that was you never know do you? It alternates warnings with wonderful teaching and the middle of the book is all about one job title of Jesus Christ. It's on the business card. We've been handed a business card and it says, Jesus Christ, High Priest. 
And we really need to understand the implications of what that means for us, especially in the modern world. thought about a bit about that last week. The fact that Jesus is our great ultimate high priest is an anchor for the soul. An anchor is the thing that secures the ship so that whatever happens, steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Hebrews talks about the anchor kind of being thrown into heaven and it's lodged up there in the very presence of God and you're attached to it by an unbreakable chain. You ain't going nowhere. God is holding your life by an unbreakable chain. And last week we thought about one of the jobs of the high priest which was to make sacrifice. And last week the the reading and the sermon was just full of blood. It's pretty gruesome actually. The temple and the tabernacle would have been quite gruesome places. You couldn't get from the door to where God was without quite a lot of blood being shed. And all this blood taught us two vital lessons. One, sin, our sin, is much more serious than we ever realized. And two, God is much more holy than we ever thought he was. So we have a very big problem. And the writer told us this staggering truth. Jesus saves through sacrifice. Jesus saves through his own blood. And now we're going to finish up chapter 9 today, which continues this description of Jesus' work as high priest. And I see here at the end of the chapter three great hopes that are present for the Christian believer. This is spiritual reality. You might not see it. It might not be obvious. But if you really look at Jesus, there are three great hopes that are given to us to secure us in this life. And they are past, present, and future. In the past, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to die for our sins once for all. It's in the past. It's done. It's accomplished. In the present, Jesus Christ has gone back to heaven and he represents us before God right now. And in the future, he will return to take us home. Past, present, and future. And these three great hopes deal with three things that amazingly all begin with the letter R. Isn't that amazing? The ransom, the representation, and the return. We haven't had much alliteration recently. I've repented of that and turned back to it. (laughs) Ransom. Firstly, ransom, verse 15. This is actually before our reading, but it's all one cloth. For this reason, verse 15 says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, sorry, eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, a ransom was something that's paid to rescue someone who is a captive. You know, the idea of a kidnap, a person who's been kidnapped, or a, in the old ancient world, a slave could be bought, freed, by paying a price, a ransom. And Jesus' sacrifice is described here in those terms. His death was a ransom paid to set us free. Verse 23 and onward continues to explain how that works. Verse 23 says it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He's talking about the system of under the old covenant. Chris has already really helpfully um, 
kind of visually represented it for us with that box and the goat. And the thing that really struck me when, when I saw the young lad Joseph standing by the box with the goat on it, hey, it's even here still. What, what I noticed was Joseph's not a goat. Might sound silly, but how can that animal pay for a human being's sins and transgressions? There's something in the system that doesn't add up. The maths doesn't work. There's something there. And what this writer in Hebrews is saying is that the, under the Old Testament, and, and that was the most wonderful revelation that the world had ever seen, by the way, we're not denigrating that, the tabernacle which God himself had designed and given to them, and the temple which was the same structure, these things, he now says, were just copies. They weren't the real thing. They were like a model or a sketch, a prototype. My oldest son is studying architecture. I think I've mentioned this before. And what some of the young architecture, architects do is create a model, a small model, amazing model, of a reality that is going to come that is much, much bigger. And I've seen some architects' models in the past. I'm sure you have too. And when you see the real building, you see how that is just like it, but it's just a copy. It's just a sketch. It's just a model. And verse 23 says, The heavenly things... The heavenly place, the heavenly holiness, the heavenly reality. If the earthly one needed to be purified with blood, and it's just a copy, how much more does the heavenly one need, to be, need, need us to be represented in a much greater way? We see this comparison from the lesser to the greater. Anyone who entered into the real most holy place would need to offer a better sacrifice. And verse 24 says that that's what Jesus has done. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. What would it be like to see heaven itself? Even just to glimpse it. The best, the best and most vivid uh, picture of heaven that we have, or depiction, comes at the end of the Bible in a book called Revelation. It's something is revealed to us there. And it's kind of picture language, and, but it's very powerful. And Revelation says this, after I looked, this is chapter 4, I'll read it for you. After I looked, and I looked, uh, before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. He's going up to heaven. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Talks about the throne being surrounded by creation. And then in verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's a vision of heaven. The, the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, had a door, an entrance on the east. The heavenly one has a door and it's standing open. The earthly temple had an ark, a golden chest, that was understood to be a symbol of God's throne. It had a seat, the mercy seat, where God would sit enthroned. But in Revelation, we see the real throne, and it's enough to make you turn your face away. Lightning and thunder, peals of thunder, rumblings. It's awesome. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were these two angel, angelic figures, cherubim, golden. But in Revelation, they're real, and they're surrounding the throne and crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy. In the earthly tabernacle, there was a lampstand. It had seven branches. And the priest's job, one of the priest's jobs was, was actually to keep it light all the time. It was never supposed to go out. There's always light in God's presence. Here in Revelation, we see that the light, the shining, glorious light in God's presence is the very power of God's Spirit himself. So Jesus has done what no human being could ever do. He's gone into heaven, and he's dealt with sin for us in the most holy place. Verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. No priest would ever dream of offering his own blood. But there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. Jesus went once with his own blood. He didn't have to keep repeating this and making the offering. His blood was the perfect sacrifice for all sins. So he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put a waiting end to sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now this phrase, the end of the ages, echoes right back at the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us that the coming of Jesus had begun a time period called the last days. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So the coming of Jesus inaugurates the end of time. We don't know how long that's going to take, by the way, and we're not supposed to guess. But Jesus has started a clock ticking by his coming into this world that ind indicates the end is coming. And what we're in now is a period of grace and amnesty where all prisoners are invited to come out. The culmination of all God's promises, the pinnacle of God's plan of redemption, there's nothing greater, there's nothing better coming. The cavalry aren't coming, Jesus is here. So why would we look to anything else? Why would we get tired of Jesus and want someone, another saviour? Why would you go back to your old ways? Why would a person want to seek out another religious system or go back to the old covenant when what we have is more wonderful and new? Can we start to think through what it really means that your sin has been completely dealt with? You ever said sorry for a sin a hundred times? That was 99 times too many. 
Is there something, Christian friend, in your past that you cannot forgive yourself for? Jesus has forgiven it once for all, for all sins, for all people, all his people, and for all time. You can have absolute confidence in that fact. That's reality. Now, you know how it is in life. There's always something more to do. There's always more work. There's always more dishes. There's always more laundry. There's always more emails. There's always something. And that's just the earthly level. What about in the heavenly realm? What if you had to keep cleaning yourself up? You know, get washed again. Oh, no, I've done it again. You had to keep on justifying your existence in the presence of the holy God. That's what it used to be like. Jesus has changed the game. He offered himself once for all. The writer says it twice, verse 26, verse 28. He won't let this idea go because it's so important. It is the heart of the good news. The gospel, here's a quote from a scholar. The good news is not that there is something that can be done. The good news is that it has already been done and it is finished. The good news is not that there's something that can be done, but that it has already been done and is finished. Now, what does that mean for you, friend? This is really, really radical. Some people can't stomach it. It means this. No matter what kind of life you've led, no matter what sins you have committed, no matter what sins you struggle with currently, If you are trusting wholly in Jesus, then when God looks upon you, he sees perfection. Because of the blood shed for you by Jesus. The ransom has been paid. There's nothing left to pay. So being a Christian is not, and I think we need to get this here at our church, Being a Christian is not that by trusting in Jesus you've got an entrance ticket to the kingdom but now you're on your own and you have to work really hard to make up for it. It's not that. It's much bigger than that. Being a Christian is is this. By trusting in Jesus, you got Jesus' past and Jesus' track record instead of your past and your track record. You see the difference? You didn't just get an entrance ticket. You got the whole thing. To God the Father, again, this is hard to believe. I wouldn't say it if the Bible didn't teach it. To God the Father, you look as good as Jesus does. God hasn't just tolerated you because of Jesus. Oh, all right then, I suppose you can come in because I love Jesus. No, God has now adopted you into his family. You're not a lodger in the heavenly home paying rent on a contract. You are a cherished son, a cherished daughter. Christian friend, what this means is that in the eyes of the most important person in the universe, you are loved and adored. If you are a Christian, then God will not reject you. He cannot. He can't reject you. Because to do so, he would be rejecting his own son who paid the ransom for you. And that's not going to happen. Now, when he was very close to death, facing the cross, the cross was coming. Jesus prayed one of the most intimate 
and extraordinary prayers that has ever been spoken, maybe the most. We find it in the Gospel of John. And uh, I was privileged a few years ago to go to a church in Manhattan to hear a great hero of mine, one of the best preachers of the last hundred years, speaking at his last service uh, as a pastor of that church. His name was Tim Keller. And he preached on this passage and he said this, uh, of this verse, I wish I could tattoo it on your heart. I wish I could tattoo it on your heart. Jesus prayed this, John 17. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Father, you've sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. Can you believe that? Jesus Christ, praying to God the Father, said, Father, you have loved them just as you've loved me, in the same way, to the same level. That's how much God loves you, Christian friend. (laughs) I mean, we should really stop here and just start singing. Just stop and ponder that for a few minutes. It will make your hair stand on end, won't it? Jesus prayed, Father, I want them to know that you've loved them just as much as you've loved me. Wow. About 30, 35 years ago, there was a terrible disaster off the coast of Belgium uh, near the port of Zeebrugge. A passenger ferry set off. Some of you remember this. It was called the, the Herald. What was it called? The Herald of Free Enterprise. You remember it. It was a ferry. And, and all these people were on board and just going about life normally, all these trucks and cars that had driven on and just a complete disaster. The doors had not been properly secured. And as the ferry left, water began to come in and as you can imagine, it was catastrophe. The whole enormous boat literally capsized and turned the way, wrong way around and people were trapped under it trying to get out through windows that were now facing upwards. The final death toll was 193 people. It was the worst British loss of life in a single incident since World War II. But many people were saved because some passengers helped save the lives of others. One of them stood out. He was 33 years old. His name was Andrew Parker, and he was a bank worker from South London. Andrew Parker was on a family outing with his wife, Eleanor, and his daughter, Janice, And then it happened. And as the family tried to escape from under deck, they reached a perch above the water level, but it was blocked. And there was a chasm between where they were standing and the the escape route. Too wide to jump for most people. But Andrew was six foot four. And he spread-eagled his body across that gap and acted as a human bridge, a stepping stone. First came his wife and daughter, Eleanor and Janice. And then Andrew stayed in place for another half an hour and 20 more people passed across to safety. Nicknamed the Human Bridge, he was later awarded the George Medal for Bravery. Those people did nothing to save themselves except embrace what he was already doing for them. They had to walk across the bridge to safety. Listen, what about you? Have you ever walked across the bridge Have you ever said, Jesus, I know you came for me. I want to trust you and rely on you. 
forgive me, accept me. You might have been coming to this church for 20 years and never done that. It's fine. Today's the day. Come to him. If you'd like to pray with someone afterwards, come and grab me. I'll be at the door. I'd love to talk to you, get someone to pray with you or pray with you myself. Have you walked across the bridge? Jesus is a ransom. Secondly, he's a representative. Christian faith is not only hope for the past, it's actually hope for the present. Because Jesus' work, what Hebrews is teaching us, Jesus' work is ongoing, active engagement in your life and my life. Jesus has gone into that throne room He's paid the price, but now he's busy. He's representing God's, in God's holy presence, he's representing us. Verse 24 says this, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. For you, he's for you. This is the second great hope, the hope of representation. You and I, we cannot represent ourselves before God. We would be like some ordinary person trying to defend themselves in a courtroom with very clever barristers. But Jesus represents us perfectly. He speaks on your behalf. He pleads for you. He prays for you. He argues for you. He intercedes for you. He's on your team. He's your advocate. He's your spokesman. He's your intercessor. He represents us both in his death and in his life. How? He died in our place. It's as if we've died and we've paid the penalty of our sin. That's representation. But he's also lived the perfect life. The life that we should have lived. So it's now as if we lived perfectly. Jesus is in heaven representing us. And in effect, he's saying to God the Father, Father, what's true of me is true of all of those who put their trust in me. What matters now is not their track record and their past, but my track record and my past. What does this mean for you and me? What's the real world cash value? We can be honest about who we are. If you know that God will never reject you, that God will never reject you, then you don't need to keep pretending, do you? You don't need to be afraid of people discovering who you really are and what you're like and they won't like you. They'll think less of you. If, if, if God has chosen and accepted and loved us, we're no longer living for the verdict of other people, standing under their judgment, trembling under the condemnation that will surely fall from them. Because in the greatest verdict, in the ultimate courtroom, you stand tall. You are as blameless and loved as Jesus himself. God accepts you 100% based entirely on the work that Christ has finished. And he's speaking to God for you now. There should be a picture coming up on the screen here. I hope you can see it. It's John F. Kennedy, who was then president of the United States, sitting at his desk. This is a really important desk. It's called the Resolute Desk, I believe. I hope our American friends won't correct me afterwards. And this desk is in the Oval Office, in the White House. And nobody, you know, you don't just walk in and start using this desk. Only the president gets to sit there. And this desk at that time was the most powerful place in the world. Because the most powerful leader in the world was the president, John F. Kennedy. Most people wouldn't get anywhere near him. You couldn't just walk in there. It's disappeared. Can it come back? 
Because look who's under the desk. John Jr., the son of the president, peeking out from under the resolute desk. He may be everyone else's president, but he's my dad. Now, friends, that's what happens when you have a right to be a child of God. This is what Jesus, the great high priest, has come to give you. Affection. Access. Security. Love. He represents you. Currently, there are about 8,000 cases of unclaimed inheritance in the UK. People die and they leave no will and they can't find a living relative and their assets eventually pass to the crown. Did you know that? Now, I don't know about you, but I think the crown's got enough money. Every year, <laughs> millions of pounds go to the crown because the heirs don't know about the opportunity. Just think, it could be you. Seriously, there is one inheritance and one birthright that you now know about. If you are a Christian, you should claim it. Shouldn't you? You should claim it. You should stop living like a slave and a citizen. You should start living like a son and a daughter. Lord, I want to be in your presence. Come right in. Are you living in the light of this birthright? Are you claiming your rights? Christian's hope is past. Jesus came from heaven to earth to die for my sins as a ransom. Christian's hope is present. Jesus has entered heaven and he's now speaking to God the Father on my behalf, my representative. And thirdly and finally, a Christian's hope is future. He will return to take me home. Let's read verses 27 and 28. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember that quote I read earlier on, the good news is not that there's something that can be done, the good news is that something has already been done and it is finished. And verse 27 shows us that this is not just a nice idea, it actually matters personally for us because we too are all going to die and we're all going to face judgment. This verse tells us some inescapable home truths. People are destined to die once. It's coming. We don't know when. And after that, to face judgment. We will face the judge, and he will judge with absolute justice. Now, how do you feel about that? I wonder what your plea would be as the judge opens the book. For many people, the idea of God as a judge is a big barrier to accepting Christian faith. They think that the idea of hell and judgment is frankly medieval and has no place in the modern consciousness. But before you dismiss it too quickly, just give me a moment. Let's think about the nature of judgment. You know, in, in one sense, there is something essential about the idea that God is a God of justice as well as love and that he will make sure justice is done. 
let me explain why. If somebody committed a serious crime against you, and a, you went to court, and the judge just let, the, let him off, you would be screaming for justice. Anyone who has experienced real injustice and waited on the legal system knows exactly what this feels like. You're crying out for justice, and very often it isn't really done. Worse than that, a lot of people in history just seem to get away with it. The people who run oppressive regimes and cause genocide, ethnic cleansing. The people who right now, all around the world, are selling millions of vulnerable people into human trafficking. Millions. Those, some people are profiting from that. Those who are behind the drug trade that ruins so many lives. The dictators, the bullies, those who defraud pension schemes to line their own nest. The abusers who don't get caught, the pimps. There's a lot of people who seem to get away with it, and the Bible teaches that in the end, no one gets away with it. Justice is coming. It is appointed to die once, he says, and after that comes judgment. So you know what? There is some comfort in this. Justice will be done in the end. And wouldn't I like to see that person judged? But even as I point the finger at that person, I notice something chilling. There are three fingers pointing back at me. Because God's judgment is coming to me too. And in that sense, it's like a hurricane heading towards my house. Michael Kruger, whose book I've been using on Hebrews, uh, is an American scholar. He writes about a hurricane called, called Dorian. Goodness knows how they come up with these names. Anyway, Hurricane Dorian was heading across the Atlantic towards his house in 2019, towards the East Coast, and he was paying close attention to the weather reports, as you would, because Dorian was one of the strongest Atlantic hurricanes in recorded history. It was so powerful that the rumblings could be picked up by seismometers while it was still far away. God's judgment is like a hurricane heading towards my house, your house. It's not here yet, but it's on the horizon. We can sense it. We can feel the rumblings. It is an enormous inevitability. There is no escape. It is heading our way. It's appointed, destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. We can't avoid it. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. There is no bribery with this judge. And in such a situation, what we need is a place to hide. You need a place to hide that will bear the brunt of the storm. And verse 28 gives you that good news. So Christ was sacrificed once to bear the sins of many. He died and faced judgment once on behalf of every single person who trusts him. Only he can do this. Only he can save us from the hurricane to come. And he will return. He will return. Next time, not in humility, not to bear sins. Next time in victory to bring his people home. When our kids were younger, I would sometimes go away on uh, business trips, uh, sometimes for a few days or even a week at a time. And uh, my wife would often remind me, make sure you have some gifts for the kids when you get back. And sometimes it would be a mad scramble at the airport to try and find something to give them. But when I would get home, the kids would be waiting. Dad's back. 
Do we feel like that when we think about Christ's return? Are we eager about it? He's coming back for me. Let's make sure that we're not too comfortable in this world. You know, the more we make this place our home, the more we set our hopes on this place, this world, the forever house that you've bought, your kids' future, retirement, your savings, the great holiday. The more you make this place your home, the less you will long for your heavenly home. We must remember that we're aliens and strangers here. We're just passing through so that we look forward to the time when we will return to our true home. And one thing that makes us too comfortable in this world is being too immersed in its lifestyle. We can get so familiar with the world and its lifestyle. We get caught up in patterns of compromise. Things that distract us from the spiritual life. Things that actually weary us, preoccupy us. Even good things can become a pattern that's unhelpful. And certainly sins will deter us. We will be unready for his return. Jesus told a parable about some young women who were waiting for a bride and a bridegroom. And some of them weren't ready. We want to be the ones that are ready when he comes back. And that all comes down to what you love the most and who you love the most. We need to stir our affections for Jesus. We will only long for his return if we long for him. Think of a wife whose husband's been away for a long journey. She looks at his picture on her phone. She reads his messages more than once. She reminds herself of him. She looks forward to seeing him again. She speaks to him whenever she can. She tells him of her love and wants to hear of her love, his love for her. And so it is with Jesus Christ. When we commune with him, when we read his words, when we fellowship with his people, when we meditate in the quiet place on him, we are more eager. So let us be the ones who are sitting on the front step saying, I can't wait until my Lord returns to save me and bring me home. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came as a ransom and we can barely conceive of what that actually means. It is too good to be true. And Lord, also we thank you that you're representing us now because we need a lot of help. And for some here, they need more help than ever. Please show them now the extent of your interaction for them. And we also get so caught up in the present time and the present life that we forget to look forward. Lord, help us now, even right now as we sing these next songs, to set our hearts and minds and hopes on things above where you were seated at the right hand of God the Father. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs to, to end, but I don't want to miss the opportunity and the challenges that we've heard this morning from Mike and from Adi as well. Um, you might have come in here uh, this morning. You're not quite sure why. Uh, we can certainly say that God knows, uh, and he has something to say to each one of us. Uh, the song uh, that we're going to sing is, Who, O Lord, Could Save Themselves? And we know the answer to that is no one. We can't save ourselves. We need the Lord Jesus. So if that is something that you need to uh, hear this morning and you need to pray with someone, please take Mike's offer and AD's offer, my offer to come and pray that prayer. But if that's something that you've been believing for uh, many years uh, and that is just now a truth that you've heard and that's captured your heart again, uh, let our voices uh, 
be lifted in praise. Uh, let's use these next couple of songs as an opportunity to praise the one who paid it all.